Welcome to Sunstorm, where we get real about what's happening in the world and what we are doing about it, because we are the light in the storm. Hi, I'm Ai-jen Poo. And I'm Alicia Garza. And today on Sunstorm, it's a real moment. We have our first dude on the show. Whoa. Joining us today is the hilarious, the unstoppable, the brilliant W. Kamau Bell. Thank you so much for coming out. Woohoo! It's a lot of pressure, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I kind of I, I kind of feel bad I'm, like I'm going to ruin it for the other dudes, but I also feel like maybe I should ruin it for the other dudes. I don't yeah, know. Definitely. Sort of, definitely. Yeah, okay, yeah you might gonna, be the first and the last. In so. a good way, ruin it. Not in a, like, <laughs> so in a, shoot your shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know I met you, Kamau, through Alicia. And how did you two meet? I was supposed to perform at a benefit. I had just moved back into town, and I was still sort of, like, getting my sea legs back. And it was like, can you do this thing? And I was like, okay. And I remember <laughs> showing up feeling like, cause this was after my show had been canceled, and I didn't know if I'd ever work again. And Melissa was either pregnant with our second kid or had had our second kid. And I just sort of showed up in this room in downtown Oakland and just feeling like, <laughs> and they're like, do comedy. And I'm like, I don't feel very funny. Uh, and I, I remember I had a Doc McStuffins like, stuffed animal in my back pocket because I'd forgotten that it was back there because that's what being a parent is. And I oh, think yeah. so, some people thought it was a comment on something, which it wasn't. It was just a comment on uh, being a parent. And I think we met there. And it wasn't until later that I realized because I was I was out of my mind at that point. I was like, wait. That's who that was? <laughs> and we didn't talk very much. But I remember or being like, I remember like later putting it all together like, oh, I was so out of it. It was, you know, one of the best days of my life because what that has meant is that I've gotten to build with you over the last few years. And it's been dope. First of all, um, you are giving me ab muscles, which we all appreciate you for, <laughs> because um, what I get to do with you is laugh hysterically about all the ridiculousness of life, and I love that. Um, but I also get to like take action with you and change the world with you, and that also makes me very happy. Um, we have done a bunch of things together, including supporting people to run for office who kick butt and take names. And, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about you is that every time there's something righteous to show up for, you're right there. And mm -hmm. I get to be right there with you. We get to do a lot of stuff where we get to explain what racism is and isn't, why it's bad, and what you can do to deal with it. Uh, and I just, I mean, thank you for saying all that. I just feel, basically, I'm a kid who wanted to be a stand-up comedian, but came from a house where my mom was always talking about the movement. And so I sort of felt like at some point I got pulled into like, well, this is where I come from. But I still feel like a kid who was like watching SNL, like wanting to be a comedian. So mm -hmm. oftentimes I feel like out of my depth or feel like, like just like wanting to make sure that I don't assume that because I'm on whatever TV that I'm the that I should be the loudest voice in the room, and so I often feel like in these spaces that I should just like really make sure that I'm not taking up too much space, and also that I don't think I'm smarter than I am because I have a TV show. You got your plate full with this show. I want to dive into the show a little bit. We did a bunch of research and kind of learning about your childhood and your life, and it feels like that's what your show is about: is learning about who we are as a country. And I'm just curious. What are some highlights of what you've learned, or is that how you even think about it? From a standpoint of a black male 
only child comedian, because I feel like those are the things that really define me. I am investigating America with whatever I have and how I do this. And I'm actually, you know, for me, this is all based on Sesame Street, like sort of like looking at the world and learning about it and trying to break it into bite-sized pieces so that like the people who are watching the show can have better dinner party conversation or better conversations at work about these things. The one episode I think about that really highlights that is the episode we did about the sick community in Yuba City, California. One of the members of the Sick Coalition asked me on Twitter if we would do an episode about them. So from the very beginning, we worked closely with them and worked to make sure that like little things like my pronunciation was as good as it can be, but also like what the things they feel like they haven't been able to show on TV because they said it was the first time anybody had done like an hour-long documentary about them on American television. So we really sort of I let them get under the hood a lot. And what it did is like now they use it as a teaching tool as a way to sort of communicate about their community to people who don't know. And so for me, that's like that's what we should be doing every week. Mm. I watched that episode. And the reason I was really drawn to it, actually, is because in watching it, I realized two things. One, I really did not know anything about Sikh people. And two, you know, I got a really deep sense of the ways in which folk build community. But I also was just deeply aware that the Sikh community is really kind of positioned as outsiders in our society, especially in like a post 9-11 context. You have talked a lot about always feeling like an outsider as a kid. And I think we can all relate to that a little bit. It's part of what I love about your show, right? Like you make people more human. Um, And so I just wonder, like, talk to me about how this drive, right, around always having felt like an outsider as a kid, does that shape your work at all? And if it does, tell me a little bit about how. I know that from people who walk across me in the street, whether they know me from TV or not, I know my defining characteristic is big black guy, basically all one word. But for me, it's only child. And so as an only child, I grew up with my mom. My mom moved around a lot. So I was always coming into new schools, new neighborhoods, new places to live, sort of having to very quickly like figure out how do I fit in here? And also a little bit, I wasn't, I wasn't the kid who wanted to be the center of attention. How can I not be seen? So I'm trying to figure out how to blend in, but also how to stay safe and who's mm-hmm. the bully and who's the funny, who's the, who are the cool kids, who are the nice kids. And I was sort of always like sort of like walking into situations trying to assess things quickly. Also, like, they would read the role and say Walter because that's my name on the role, and I'd have to decide, do I want to say Kamau or is that name weird here? I don't know. So Mm -hmm. I was always in a position of, like, doing this sort of mental gymnastics of how to move through the world. And then I'd go visit my dad in Alabama every summer, and it's a completely different life from, like, living in Boston or Indianapolis or Chicago with my mom. So I was always in a situation where I would hear – you're not from around here. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I, And eventually I'd go to Boston and they'd say, you sound like you're from the South. And then I'd go to Alabama and they'd say, you sound like you're from the North. And so I was very aware that like, I'm being told I don't fit in anywhere. And it's, at first that's lonely. And then you discover music and art and then friends and things who are like, oh, it's a, actually it's kind of a cooler thing to be an outsider. You can embrace your individuality more. And it's not easy, but it feels better ultimately. That then going into stand-up comedy, it's about like, here are thoughts that I have in my head that I feel like nobody else has or nobody else is expressing. So the whole role of a comedian is to figure out how to say things that nobody else has said or say things that everybody's thinking but they're afraid to say. 
uh, and also get laughter in that process because that's the way that you know people understand you. The laughter is them going like, I understand. Doesn't mean they agree with you, but they understand you. So I think that whole process of being comedian is very much connected to my outsider status. I mean, it also reminds me of your show in terms of just how you're guiding people through an experience of really complicated issues that you yourself are also learning. It's kind of all unfolding. What have you learned about how to help people gain understanding and compassion and connect a sense of connection really quickly? I think one of the things that the show gets criticism for that I, that I struggle with sometimes but realize actually, actually what I'm trying to do is learning how to be quiet and learning how to like not speak all the time. Because I think a lot of times in these situations when you're presented with knowledge that is somehow foreign to you or, th- or maybe even feels threatening, that our instant reaction in society is to sort of like argue back against it or talk over it or wait to talk. And I think, again, this is about moving to the Bay Area. I would be in all these rooms in the Bay Area where all these conversations were happening. It's like, I don't know anything about none of the stuff people are saying. I'm just going to be quiet and listen. And then I would go to another room and go, here's what I just learned. And so for me, the show, even though it's hosted by a comedian who's supposed to be funny and make jokes, it's really all about listening. And the more you listen, the more people will talk. And the more they talk, the more they'll say things that they weren't expecting to say. And then you'll both learn something. That makes sense. I mean, I think that you're actually really brilliant at creating the kinds of spaces where people get to be deeply human. And for those folk who may not be connected in real life, it actually just makes you more open to that. You've talked a lot about how you learned at an early age that there's not one America, but there's two. And now you know that actually there's more than two. There's many different Americas. And I think the work that you do and the work that you've done has really kind of created a path for us to figure out how do we bring all of those Americas together. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Like, how did you get to know that there were two Americas? What do you mean by that? And then how has your thinking evolved over time? And then, of course, the third part of the question is, what do you think we need to do to bring all of the different Americas into one? Is it even possible? I think it's possible, but I think I may not get there with you. (laughs) (laughs) We may not reach the promised land together. I may not get there with you, but I think it's possible. (laughs) Uh, To talk about how I learned there was two Americas, I think as a kid, there was two because I would be in the so-called North with my mom, whether it's Indianapolis, Boston, or Chicago. And then I'd spend every summer in Mobile, Alabama, which is the deep South. Deep, Uh, deep. The profound deep South. (laughs) And... Indianapolis, Boston, Chicago are basically urban environments, and Mobile is 300,000 people. So it's like I learned very quickly that like the way that people in Mobile, Alabama live and the way they talk and interact is very different than the way that people in Boston, Chicago, and Indianapolis do. And also the way I had to act and be with people uh, was different. Like my mom would always tell a story that one time she picked me up at the airport when I came back from Mobile, and we got in the car, and I said to her, Clodo Doe. And she said, what? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> she my said, mom what? used to say that. <laughs> oh, my God. Deep and South said, represent. Yep. She said, what did you say? I said, oh, close the door. <laughs> and so, like, I don't think I did it on purpose. I had just been in the Clodado land, and now I was in the close the door land. So, mm-hmm. and also, like I said, people could tell no matter where I was that I wasn't from there, even though both these places were my home. And... Then as a comedian, you just take $50 to go play anywhere that'll pay you $50, and you end up in 
all sorts of places that you never would that people don't go because there's no reason to be there. So like, you know, people think Nevada is Las Vegas. I know Nevada is Battle Mountain, Nevada, Ely, Nevada, mm-hmm. Lovelock, Nevada. And, you know, as a comedian, I've been around a lot of different places and just learned that like somebody who lives in Lovelock, Nevada is experiencing a very different America than somebody who lives in Oakland, California. And, you know, and then there's probably now we're going to talk about different parts of Oakland. And now we're going to talk about people who grew up in Oakland in the in the 70s and 80s versus people who grew up in Oakland now. So they, mm-hmm. they, there's a shifting idea of what America is. But the thing that I find to be mostly true is that people think where they live, especially if they don't travel a lot, which most people don't, is sort of the best version of America or the most defining version of America. And so mm-hmm. when they hear somebody in the deep south doing something, they don't have a context for that. And they go, they're doing America wrong, you know. You know, that's not the way America is supposed to be. And the thing I've learned is, like, there's certain things we should be able to agree on as far as human rights and and people being able to have access to the things they need. But other than that, it's just cultural differences that we need to get off of thinking that the way we do it is better than the way other people do it. I want to actually come back to your mom. It sounds like she was a total boss. You know, the theme of this whole show is about how women shine through the storms of our lives in this chaotic time um, in our country's history. And it sounds like she was shining through a lot of chaos, too, in her life. How did she shine? Part of my outsider status certainly comes from my mom, because whereas I was an only child, she had an older brother and then younger siblings who were twins, so she was a middle kid and felt like she got squeezed the way a lot of middle kids kids feel like they're not being getting all the attention. And she also just was like always very intellectually curious, but growing up in Indianapolis, she was born in 1937. The role that she was being pushed into playing as far as like she didn't get married until she was 24 or 25, and people called her an old maid at the time. And she basically only got married because she felt like she was supposed to and then very quickly realized, nope, that was a mistake. And her whole life has been about fighting against the gender roles that were assigned to a black woman born in Indianapolis in 1937. But she's like, you know, bought homes, moved to go to new jobs. Every job she went to was always like, you're the first black woman to ever have this job. And so then she had to deal with that, which is like, well, you have the job, but you don't have the power that most people have in this job. So I just Mm -hmm. always, my image of my mom is always like, I'm going to do it the way I want to. I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm not going to take yes for an answer. And I'm not going to let you tell me what to do just because you're paying me. She's always been determined to do things her own way. And then that came down to me. And so We moved from Boston to Chicago, and she decided she wanted to start self-publishing books of black quotations. This was in 1984 when there weren't books of black quotations. Now there are a lot because of the work she did. Like she sort of started an industry and was selling books out of her car. And whenever I tell the story, it's like it is pretty easy to self-publish a book now. It's basically a button on Amazon. But then she had to drive out to the suburbs to the typesetter, then drive out to the other suburb for the graphic designer. Then she had to pay for these books in advance. And she's driving to black bookstores and black book festivals and and contacting every black bookstore around the country to sell these books. And that's how she put me through high school, you know, and that's how she put food on the table. And it wasn't easy, but she was determined at that point not to work for anybody else. That is so badass. I love her. 
she's a complete badass, and we moved her out to Oakland uh, like a couple years ago. And so right now, my focus for my mom is just like, just relax. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I, I, if I'm going to work this hard, you're not going to work. And so come see your grandkids whenever you want to. She still does things. She volunteered for the League of Women Voters. I mean, she's still very active, but she's like, I really think like, you know, I'm not the NBA draft pick who can buy you all a house, but I can get you a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> so like, <laughs> so uh, I'm not who I am without my mom's example of how to do it your own way. And also, really step bravely into the abyss if that's the best decision. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't have to hold on to a job you don't want. You don't have to be around people who you think you need to be around for ulterior motives. Just if you need to go, just go. Mm. Mm, I heard that. that. Your mom sounds like somebody who's been making a way out of no way for a minute. Oh, yeah. So I got some questions. I think a lot about this, actually, which is, you know, comedy can go either way. I have been in comedy shows where folks are making jokes about things that I'm like, this is just not actually funny. And I get the point. Maybe I'm being too sensitive, but probably I'm just like being aware of the way the world works. Mm-hmm. And you know, as well as I do, that um, there have been some kind of dust ups lately um, around comedians who um, use their platform actually for things that can be pretty problematic. So, You know, I guess my question for you is, what do you think comedy as a platform can do to be the light in the storm? I think the thing people don't realize is that comedy on some level is like just a it's like a a, a, a rhetorical device where it's just a way to sort of express yourself. I think people often think and this is what I was alluding to earlier, that comedy is expressing the truth. Mm. And so I think people think that like. You know, there's the expression, it's funny because it's true. And it's like, no, 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 it's funny because the comedian knows how to write a joke. Mm. You know, so I think a lot of times people get caught up in like, I laughed. That must mean that's my new political viewpoint. Mm. And it's like, no, it just it just means that you thought it was funny. And a lot of times you can think things are funny that you wouldn't vote for. You know, we used to understand that on a basic level. Like I remember years ago watching like a Chris Rock special with my parents and they would laugh out loud at some stuff and then get quiet for other stuff and then laugh out loud at some stuff and then go, he's crazy. You know what I mean? Like there was jokes they just weren't with. But they understood the sum total was like, we like generally what Chris Rock does, you know? I think now there's a little bit of like, I like that joke. I don't like that joke. I'm going to have to tell that comedian that I don't like that one joke. <laughs> like I'm going to have mm-hmm. to reach out to him online and tell him that that one joke. And I'm saying that's fine to do. Please feel free to express that. And I've heard that. And I've apologized for jokes I've done. There are times when I feel like I've crossed the line. But I think a lot of comedians don't want to apologize. I think it reveals weakness. And so now there's this sort of like this. Is it like a standoff? A standoff sometimes. But (laughs) but I think sometimes a needless standoff because I think there are comedians out there for everybody. And the ones you don't like, you can just let them go. Because I am a fan of comedy that I don't like. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like there are comedians. There are comedians who... I wouldn't want to have to live with that dude in his house. <laughs> like, I wouldn't want to. Oh my god! If that's the screen, that's... yeah, I wouldn't want him. I wouldn't want him to to fill out my voter ballot. Maybe wouldn't even want to have a cup of coffee with him. But something about the things he says makes me laugh. You know, 
And that's fine. And this is back to this is probably the most guiltiest of pleasure, things you laugh at that you shouldn't laugh at. Mm. Now, the history of comedy is heteronormative. It's very gender binary. It's very white male dominated. And then then other like black males come in and then some other males from other racial groups come in, men from other racial groups come in. But it's also a thing that takes place that the history of it is in dark nightclubs at night. Uh, usually in basements. <laughs> it usually was something mm-hmm. that was happening uh, while people were drunk or otherwise taking other substances. Comedy clubs didn't start out as things that happened at 1030 in the morning on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? So I think mm-hmm. there's a culture around that, that the nighttime, late at night, drunken culture sort of feeds a type of comedy. And people thought that's what stand-up comedy was. Well, now in the modern era, since like the mid-90s, there are lots of comedians who don't feel comfortable in that culture and they come through other ways to do it. Thankfully, there are comics out there for everybody. You just have to do the work to find them. And also, I think sometimes there's a thing about like choosing to go, this is a comic whose jokes I don't like, so I'm going to keep it moving. Or this is a comic whose joke I don't like, and I need to do something about it. You know, and mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, so that, I think that's a question that people have to ask themselves sometimes because I don't want my audience to think everything I do is equally good or equally righteous. I do want huh. the freedom as an artist to say stuff that's like, I know I shouldn't say this, but now, uh-huh. having said that, there are certainly things I'm not going to do that for because they just don't make me feel good to say them out loud. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. There's so many things about comedy, though, that are really helpful. Just thinking about how you get an immediate sense of where people are emotionally mm-hmm. through audience responses. Like, There's such helpful data there mm-hmm. <laughs> about yes. what people feel. And there's not a rational screen that kicks in. It's just like a, an immediate emotional response that I feel like is useful. And the more I've learned about improv over the years, too, the more I feel like it's just like so many of the principles behind improv are really just about being really present with whoever you're with. And I feel like that's like life skills, We even did a whole improv for caregivers training because we found that so many of the tools and skills associated with improv were actually really useful for caregivers. (laughs) Um, But I'm curious, like, what do you think we can learn from comedy about how to navigate the storms of our lives today? I did improv at Second City in Chicago. It was my first way to sort of get into doing comedy. And I think the rule of improv, which is yes and, is a great rule for life. <laughs> like, like I think a lot of times we are, are we generally walk around with no, but. <laughs> I think that like that sometimes is just a way to sort of stop things from happening. And I think if you see me on United Shades, the rule of yes and is how I'm having those conversations go so long. Because I'm mm-hmm. saying, yes, you said that. I hear you. And also this. <laughs> like So it's a way to build community and build alliance and I think because of the way the social media is set up so much of it is about scoring points on wicked burns and which is all uh-huh. no but and I think that like the and you know this you both know this that the way to build community is to hear people and build on what they say and then bring in what you think about that I have one more question which is um, you know you are the first and maybe the last dude to come <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's last like drop the mic last pod. not last like yikes I mean it's kind of like I don't know I mean I, I'm hoping we're still on the fence about it yeah it's like kind of like Obama right he was like mm-hmm. our first black president and I'm not clear that we'll ever have another one but it's possible <laughs> it's right? well, yeah, yeah. If we're, let's just be real 
everything is possible. But in case we don't get that chance, I feel like we should just do right now what I really wanted Obama to do in his second term, which was like ride it to the wheels fall off because mm. we don't know if we're mm-hmm. going to get here again. Mm-hmm. So if we we're going to ride it to the wheels fall off, come out. I just want to hear from you as a dude who has three daughters. What kind of world do you want your daughters to be able to grow up in? And what do you do every day to make that world happen? My daughters are already aware that America has never elected a woman for president. And in fact, America has now turned down two women for president. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I can see the frustration in my five-year-old, my eight-year-old about that. And I can't really explain it to them in a way that makes sense other than saying sexism, misogyny, uh, the mm-hmm. patriarchy. But none, and you can explain that, but it doesn't make sense because those things ultimately don't make sense, you know? That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I feel very, like, invested in the idea that, like, I as a father have to do better letting them know and letting them see in the world that I don't think it makes sense either. Mm. I think I know it doesn't make sense and I know it's wrong, but then it becomes about I need to show them that their dad clearly also doesn't think it makes sense that it's not just something that i'm like yeah it doesn't make sense anyway pancakes you want another pancake Mm -hmm. uh it's sort of like a call to action for me like i think men have to really do a more out loud and public job of proclaiming how sick the patriarchy is and how Mm -hmm. sick misogyny is and i think there's many ways we can do that so I feel a tremendous responsibility for my daughter. And I don't mean this. I mean, it's so hard to say this because you also I am sensitive to being the guy who's like, I never knew what a woman was until I had daughters. I'm not saying that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> totally. I'm saying the conversations that I had in my house with my daughter and the things that she has said and that my five year old said and how confusing it is sort of alerts me to the fact this is a ridiculous situation we're in. And because this is already in the wheelhouse of what I do, I need to do a better job of like showing up for it in a public way. You know, the other thing I'm really taking away from this conversation is that, I mean, I love the idea that you just roll up on people and (laughs) ask them questions so that you can laugh. And it just Mm -hmm. is a reminder that laughter and joy is always available to us Mm -hmm. that no matter how bad the elections are or how horrible sexism, racism and everything is shaping our world, that laughter and joy are always there for us to tap into and to to give. That's how it should be. W. Kamau Bell, thank you, thank you, thank you. And people can find you at W. Kamau Bell on all the socials. All the socials. And to all of you lovely listeners, write to us, tweet us, tell us about how you are making your way through the storm. Follow us at Sunstorm Pod on social media and tweet us at Ijen Poo and at Alicia Garza, hashtag Sunstorm. We can't wait to hear from you. Ciao. Ciao. Sunstorm is a project of the National Domestic Workers Alliance in collaboration with Participant. Sunstorm is executive produced by Alicia Garza, Ai-Jen Poo, Christina Mevs-Apgar, and Jess Morales-Rocchetto. Sunstorm is produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Producers are Jocelyn Gonzalez, Shelby Sandlin, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Mia Warren. Original music composed by Jen Kwok and Jody Shelton. I also could very easily at this point say show yourself from Frozen 2 just because that's what we're listening oh, to a lot in my house. But <laughs> Excellent choice. Frozen 2. It's, I, I, you could not see Frozen 2, or, but it's, 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 there's some bangers on the Frozen 2 soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs>